South Africans are reeling from the gruesome murder of 28-year-old Tehofato Pule. She was found murdered and uh, hanging from a tree. A case so shocking that even in the midst of pandemonium and a lockdown, it made the nation's headlines. A young woman, eight months pregnant, lured to her death by the man she thought she could trust the father of her unborn baby. With big dreams and a life full of plans ahead of her, her light was extinguished. She became another victim of a rampant social plague, a plague threatening so many who live in South Africa, but also the rest of the world. This is Tehofato Pule's story. Hello and welcome to Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast hosted by me, Bella Monsoon. I'm a mental health professional, so Murder and Mayhem, a South African true crime podcast, explores real-life crimes occurring within South Africa from a psychological viewpoint. Every week, a new case is examined and we delve headfirst into the motives that drive people to do what they do. Join me weekly on a journey into the minds behind the madness as we traverse murder, mayhem, and much more. As with any story, we will start at the beginning with Serovato Pule. Serovato Pule was born on the 10th of May in Meadowlands, Soweto, Johannesburg. Soweto is a township in the city of Johannesburg in Gauteng. It borders the city's mining belt in the south. As with many other townships with a predominantly non-white population, Soweto was created in the 1930s when the government started to separate races, creating black townships. These townships were carefully separated from the white suburbs by what was known as a cordon sanitaire. Basically, a sanitary corridor, direct translation, which was usually a river, a railway, an industrial area, or a highway. Soweto's name is an English syllabic abbreviation for South Western Townships. As of 2017, the population of the area was 98.5% black. Although there are many successful families living in Soweto, many of the inhabitants do survive off a bare minimum salary, if they are lucky enough to have employment. When it comes to safety, according to stats as of last year, 2021, the chances of being a victim of crime in Soweto is 1 in 42, with decreases in crime being noted over the months. Soweto is known for its integral history, which catapulted it into the light of world media, with the educational protests of 1976. In this modern day, the area has become a bustling suburb, known for its iconic landmarks, as well as the instrumental role it played in paving the way for a new, inclusive South Africa. And it was here in this bustling suburb that Tero Fazzo was raised by her aunt and uncle after her mom and dad had passed away in 2009. She had two brothers and a sister, Mimi. She was raised with her two cousins, Tepang and Tabiso. She was particularly close to her one cousin and the two were raised like sisters. She was described as a beloved daughter. Her aunt always saw her as her own, a girl who would never have hurt a fly. She always saw the good in people and, like many others, believed that with love and patience, a negative situation had the power to be altered and she would go out of her way to assist those in need and those close to her. She was always described as energetic and full of life, 
Her cousin would later say, She had this energy. When she walked into a room, you took notice. She was fun. When she was around, you were happy. She couldn't dance to save her life, but she was the life of the party. There was always laughter in her corner of the room. Being around her family also made her happy. Tseho Fatso was a trendsetter, and she loved fashion and makeup. So much so that she pursued a career as a makeup artist. She was working at a MAC cosmetic store, but she was also looking at a future career in marketing. She was determined to be a success and she was incredibly self-reliant. If she needed money, she would ensure that she went out and got beauty bookings instead of waiting for someone else to assist her. During high school, though, she would meet the man who would change her life forever, Ndotoko Shoba. Ndotoko Shoba was born in 1989. Not much is known about his earlier years. However, we do know that he grew up in a loving family, was well-educated and well-provided for. After finishing school, he ended up working within the IT division of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange as an analyst. According to later records, he earned around 36,000 rand per month. He would later be described as a womanizer, someone who loved to party and during younger years particularly would often be asking many different girls to go home with him. Although technically he was unmarried, in 2020 he was dating two women simultaneously and one of them happened to be Tsehofatso. He would later describe the relationship between the two as informal. On the other hand, the relationship he had with the other woman, Rosetta Mwache, was considered serious in his eyes. She was his life partner. Their families had met and they had arranged a dowry, of which a certain amount was paid and the balance was to be paid on the day of their ceremony. The law views that as a customary marriage. Together, the two of them had a home in Florida, Ruedeport, which was in both of their names, and they had a joint bond on the property. Regardless of how serious this relationship appeared to be, though, on the side, Shoba was still with Techofatso. He would later go on to say, in regards to their relationship, we would bump into each other, hang out, and eventually decided to spend the night together. It was never a very serious relationship. According to a series of messages later uncovered between the two, his absence in the relationship, as well as his lack of care about her well-being, was evident. More so when it had turned out that she was pregnant. But you see, this wasn't the first time that she had fallen pregnant with his child. Her previous pregnancy was terminated, Upon his wishes, allegedly. But like he would continue to say, their relationship wasn't anything serious. On February 3rd of 2020, she had told him that they needed to talk. And two days later, she had texted him and said, We have a situation and that needs to be dealt with. I need your support. Time is not on our side because I want to start going for my checkups. I don't want to risk the pregnancy. I'm in a fragile state. He had then made plans to see her, but he had failed to pitch up. After failing several times to take her to the doctor, she had told him that she was stressed and that she didn't choose to be pregnant with his child twice. I mean, it does take two to tango, after all. She had said to him via text, I know you don't want this child, but I was not going to live with myself, Gore. I aborted a child cut three months. I'm not that evil. 
I just felt God was going to punish me for doing that and to think it was not my first time doing it. Sorry for ruining your plans of life. I did not mean to. He then told her that he was getting tired of this and that his patience was running out. He had responded via text and said, You are getting frustrated because you are forcing yourself to be here. It's not natural. Until the day of the trial, months later, Tsecho Fatso's family only knew of Shoba from a distance. And they most certainly did not know that he was already engaged to be married. Text messages showcase that Tsecho Fatso did know of the existence of the other woman. As she had said on WhatsApp, Live your happy life with your girlfriend. Because it seems like I'm going to be a problem. Or you are stressed you are having a baby with me and not your girlfriend. I did not choose to be pregnant twice and with your child. Most of the communication between the two was often initiated by Tehofatso, and Shoba was often absent, making excuses like he had to work, amongst other things. More text messages revealed between the two would later paint that sad picture. At this point in time, she was four months pregnant, but she had still not seen a doctor. On the 25th of February, though, Shoba had finally sent her money to go and get a checkup. 500 rand to be precise. She then saw a doctor alone again on the 4th of March. She then asked Shoba if he planned to tell his family about the pregnancy, as he had initially promised he would do so by the end of March. However, he soon changed his story and he said that he would wait for the baby to be born in order to get tests done before he would tell any of his family. According to later testimony by Shoba, he stated that their relationship was frequently volatile, as Tehofatso wanted his emotional availability. You know, she expected him to actually behave like someone who was expecting a child with another person. Super demanding, right? So I'm sure at this point you may be like, well, Bella, why didn't she just leave him? Well, you know, it's always easier to assess in hindsight. And like I said, Cheryl Fatso was an optimist. She obviously believed that he could be a better version of himself. If not for her, then for their unborn child. Unfortunately, her judgment of his character would turn out to be far from the truth. As her pregnancy progressed and the months went on, their relationship continued to decline. She had made peace with that. However, she had hoped deep in her heart that he would at least have some type of relationship with the child once it was born. Perhaps a dubious desire, improbable to come into volition. She, however, in many ways was excited for the life growing within her. She had already picked out a name for her baby, a little girl. Kamano, which means to bring unity or togetherness. But unfortunately, she would never have the opportunity to meet the little life that was soon due to enter the world. In the month of May 2020, Tsecho began to receive threats via SMS from an unknown number and an unknown lady. The text messages had begun on the 5th of May and the sender had told her that they had spoken to their connects. I'm assuming connections. And they said that they knew where she worked. One of the messages had read, I'm coming to your workplace. Keep disrespecting me, Wena. Woman to woman, how do you feel sleeping with another woman's man like that? You are the pits. She had responded and her response basically translated to you are crazy. 
The sender had then responded by saying, being crazy was better than sleeping around and giving our partners STIs, don't you think? Terofazzo had then responded and had told the sender, Shem, you are really hurt, babe, and I promise you if you carry on like this with me, you are really going to a mental institution. And imagine how happy I'm going to be with your so-called man, one you are gone. The following day, Wednesday the 6th of May, the unknown sender followed up with a message disclosing her health status and recommending that Tejofazo get tested and then messaged once again, you make me sick. And since she did not receive a response, on Friday the 8th of May, she had added, Stop being generous with your cook. Look now, so many possibilities of who the father is. I feel for you, sissy. Tsekhofatso did not respond to any of these last texts. It is also alleged that they came from Shoba's partner, but the sender was never discovered. According to her cousin, Tsekhofatso was also receiving calls from an unknown woman who would phone her and then mockingly ask her how her pregnancy is going before putting the phone down on her. She didn't want to burden her family, so she dealt with all of these messages and calls on her own. But little did she know that these text messages and calls were the least of the evils that she would soon encounter. Whilst she was hoping for a favourable outcome, Shorba was preparing a deadly plan, and she would never see it coming. It would later come to light that the man who was responsible, well, physically that is, for taking her life, was actually scheduled to do so a week prior to the fatal incident. On the 29th of May, this man was supposed to pick her up from an interview and end her life. This was the ruse. A recruitment agency had reached out to her, offering her employment within the beauty industry. At the time, she was really in need of the work and the income, and so she jumped at the opportunity. The recruiter had then told her that they would be meeting at a local McDonald's. Yes, a strange place to meet, but hey, a job was a job. On the day of the interview though, the recruiter had told Tejofazzo that she was running late and so she would send a car to pick her up. She had then told her there was a jeep waiting for her opposite the McDonald's. But this was no ordinary lift. It was, of course, the hired help driving the vehicle and waiting for her. Unluckily for him though, Tejofazzo had not taken the bait, suspecting that something may be amiss. Unfortunately, ruses like this are way too common within South Africa. And so that plan had failed. And when Shoba had heard the news, he was allegedly quite annoyed. You see, Shoba didn't plan on doing any of the dirty work himself. Oh no. He was always going to make use of a hitman, an acquaintance that he had known from his school days, Muzakayese Malapane. Muzakayese Malapane was 31 years old at the time, and he was no stranger to run-ins with the law. These ranged from speeding fines and withdrawn stolen car charges to attempted murder and attempted burglary, both charges also withdrawn for some odd reason. However, his friends, family and neighbours insisted even after his actions and the role he played in Tsekhofatso's demise came to light, that he would not harm a soul. In the neighborhood he grew up in, Zondi in Soweto, he was nicknamed Cheese Boy. 
He was described as a friendly, peaceful guy who did not hold grudges and liked to party. His main source of income, however, was allegedly through stealing cars, house break-ins, and obtaining and selling car parts. He described his own activities as living a gangster life. He, however, had lived with his mother in her home up until the age of 28 years old. And during this time, he had fathered three children with three different women. His mother maintains that he did not need the money he was offered and that he knew that he could always come to her if he was in need of funds. During the national lockdown in South Africa in 2020, he began to sell illicit cigarettes and alcohol, both which were prohibited from sale during the higher levels of lockdown. Yeah, that happened and so did pineapple beer, but... That's a story for another day. It would turn out though that dealing in banned substances was the least illegal and shocking scheme that he would be part of that year. Shoba had approached him and offered him 7,000 rand to kill Chekhofatso as he didn't want his wife to be to know that he had impregnated her. Shoba, according to Malapane, was set to receive a large sum of money, allegedly 8 million rand, and thus he did not want to lose his wife-to-be or the money. So after some negotiation and a significant rate increase to 70,000 rand to be precise, Malapane decided to take Shoba up on the offer. He wasn't worried about getting the payment from Shoba, who allegedly feared him. And so the 4th of June 2020 rolled around. That morning, Shoba had visited his friend and the hired hitman, Malapane's home in Rodeport, to inform him that the murder was to take place that evening. Shoba, however, would later claim that this visit was not to discuss or plan a murder, but rather to purchase illicit cigarettes. The plan was seemingly simple. Malapane was to pretend to be an Uber driver, to pick up Techofatso and then end her life. So here's what really happened, according to later testimony and evidence. Malapane had been in his home, drinking with his friends, when he had received the green light to come and pick up Techofatso. He had then left in his girlfriend's silver-grey jeep for Shoba's home in Florida. They had missed each other's phone calls whilst he was driving, but they finally connected and he was told to wait outside the complex when he arrived. But let's rewind it a bit. So earlier that day, Techofatso had made dinner for her family, she had waited for her aunt to eat, dishing up for her, and even then washing all the dishes after they were done. It was at this point that she had mentioned that Shoba had invited her to his home to sort out some last-minute baby things, and he had ordered an Uber to collect her. She also stated she would be back later that night, so they should not lock the front gate. She had then left in the Uber that Shoba had called. It is not certain what exactly transpired that evening, but we do know that she was not in a good state of mind, speaking to a friend that same night, telling them that she wanted to come back home. Allegedly, he had been receiving calls from his fiance the whole night, and this had soured the mood of the evening. This friend would also be the last person who ever spoke to her. Just after 10pm, CCTV footage of the complex shows Shoba and Techofatso walking out the gate to the road. They then both walk back to the home only to return back to the gate a few minutes later. It is at this point when the grey jeep pulls up. Techofatso then walks nearer to the front of the vehicle and Shoba stands back on the curb, seemingly on his phone. Soon after, the vehicle is seen driving away as Shoba re-enters the complex. And this is when Techofatso's ride from hell began. 
In the vehicle, instead of driving her home to Madeleine's, he began to head towards Nordgesig. When she had apparently asked him why they were not going to her home, as she did think this was an Uber or taxi service after all, he had told her that he needed to drop something off. Although the plan, according to Schauber, was to hang her from Mareesberg Bridge and stage it so it looked like a suicide, Malapane soon discovered that this would not work. He realized that this plan would be impossible to carry out because the bridge was too high and the road was too busy. And in a later account, he stated that he could not bring himself to hang her to death. And so, after driving around aimlessly for too long, he had decided, in his own words, that f*** it, I'm just going to do it right there. He had then parked in an open felt, next to a juvenile facility in Noorgesig. It was here that he got out of the vehicle with a firearm in his hand, and opened the passenger door where Tejofatso was sitting. He had then grabbed her and told her to get out of the vehicle. I cannot imagine how fearful and full of panic she must have felt. He had then proceeded to shoot her in the chest. He then picked her up, put her in the back seat of the vehicle, and headed towards Durban Deep. Panicking now, he attempted to make her death look like the original plan, placing a rope around her neck and leaving her body hanging from a tree. The location that he had chosen was only 800 meters away from where he was residing at the time with his girlfriend. At this point, he had phoned Shorba, who had not answered at first, but who had called him back, asking if the job was done. He had confirmed that it was complete. The last time he had spoke to Shorba was when he had met him at a cash build in Meadowlands, where Shorba had told him that he was still making arrangements for his payment. And so Tejofatso was left, discarded. She was 28 years old and 8 months pregnant. Her family became suspicious after WhatsApp messages and calls went unanswered the next day. And the last time she had been seen on WhatsApp had been just before 10pm the previous evening. Remember, she had promised her aunt that she would be home soon, but she had never returned. And Tejofatso always stuck to her word. Her friend, who was the last one to speak to her, was the first one to report her missing to the police two days later. Whilst her family were worrying where she was, little did they know that in the surrounding area, the body of an unidentified woman had been discovered. The open felt where Tejofatso was left was surrounded by a roadway that was frequented by taxis. And thus, it was the next morning when her body was discovered. In the meanwhile, though, after she had been reported missing by her friend, Shorba had the cheek to insert himself into the situation and help the police of Florida Police Station investigate her disappearance. This is something that is actually more characteristic of serial killers, where they embed themselves into an investigation of their crime. I'm sure his logic, though, was that if he was the one to report and assist with her disappearance, he would look a lot less guilty. And so he showed police CCTV footage of the last night he had seen her alive. CCTV footage that was unable to actually see the number plates of the Uber that had picked her up. And CCTV footage that would later bring way more questions to light. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The next day, Tejofatso was identified after the individuals who had found her had tweeted about the discovery. Her family and friends would then hear the shocking and saddening news. And very soon after that, her story hit the media. 
The country was horrified. A pregnant woman, almost at full term, found murdered and hanging. And so the hashtag Justice for Tejo began trending on Twitter. Her murder sparked a petition and calls for the government to address the unspoken shadow pandemic of gender-based violence in the country. The president of the time, Cyril Ramaphosa, had said, It is a dark and shameful week for us as a nation. Criminals have descended to even greater depths of cruelty and callousness. It simply cannot continue. Since the lockdown in South Africa had begun in March of 2020, Lifeline had reported that gender-based violence cases went up 500%. Tejofatso had become another statistic. On the 11th of June, she was laid to rest at Dobsonville Cemetery. Pink and white balloons were released. Due to the pandemonium of the world and the South African national lockdown, there were restrictions in place, only allowing 50 people to attend the service. Her friends and family were adamant to remember her for the kind of person she was, not the way in which she met her end. Her childhood friend Topiso said that Tejofatso would have been proud to see the way everyone came together to support one another. She valued her family and those close to her above everything else, and she only ever wanted to see them happy. Her sister Mimi recalls how Tsekhofatso had always told her that she would be there for her, pray for her, and she knew that Mimi would find peace in her heart, especially after the loss of both of their parents. And whilst a family said farewell to their beloved one, the police were on the search for a silver grey jeep. It had turned out that although the plates weren't initially visible, the vehicle had been tracked on several traffic cameras. Along his journey, Malapane's fake number plate had fallen off the back, and this had revealed the original number plate. There had also been a camera on Albertina Sosulu Road, parallel to Main Reef Road, where Malapane's vehicle was captured. And just 11 days after her murder, Malapane was captured and the vehicle was confiscated. When he was arrested in Hillbrow, he claimed that he was on his way to the police station to turn himself in. However, that seemed highly unlikely as there was luggage in his vehicle. His narrative, however, took this into account, stating that he had returned from Mpumalanga after feeling fear over what he had done and the media outcry of the case. He had also allegedly told his girlfriend that he was involved in this case after she had shown him a news article on her phone, but he had not elaborated as to what his part was. Once in custody, Malapane soon confessed to the details of the crime, implicating the mastermind Ntutoko Shoba, and then later accepting a plea bargain agreement in January of 2021. He would also later agree to turn state witness against Shoba. Muzika Yese Malapane was sentenced to 20 years imprisonment for Tejo Fatso's murder and five years for obstructing justice and possession of an unlicensed firearm and ammunition, all to be served concurrently. You are sentenced to a term of imprisonment of five years, direct imprisonment on each of the counts two, three, and four, served concurrently with the 20 years direct imprisonment, which is what you will serve. During the court hearing, he wept 
as Tejofato's family and friends had gathered to see the man who ended her life. He then penned a letter of apology to the family, who had accepted it, but maintained that Malapane needed to face the consequences of his actions. A portion of the letter had read, I am writing this letter to share with you what has been on my mind and heart. I stayed awake writing this letter in my head, and each time I found myself bawling up the pages. I couldn't find the right words to convey how deeply remorseful I am for killing Tejofatso Pule. Somehow saying I'm sorry for robbing her of her life and family seems to be a small gesture. Every time I thought back to that fateful night, I find myself asking this question. Why didn't I just drive away or call for any help or go to the police? I have let down a lot of people and I will do everything in my power to learn from this regrettable doing and face the outcome of what transpired that night. I would like to extend my apologies once again. Ntudoko Shoba was arrested in February of 2021 and he was charged with one count of murder, conspiracy to commit murder and two counts of defeating the ends of justice. He pleaded not guilty to all the charges. His phone was taken where it was later discovered that all communication between Tejofatso and himself was deleted. Shoba then had three failed attempts at curing bail, even after he stated that he was receiving death threats. He thus remained in custody up until the trial which commenced a year later in 2022. He had unsuccessfully tried three times at securing bail. So the timeline of events according to Shoba and his statement in his initial bail application are as follows. On the day Tejofatso had disappeared, she had come to his home to compile a list of what was outstanding for the baby. They had apparently gone shopping a week before that for the necessary items and clothing for the unborn child. Later that evening though, someone that she knew but whose face he hadn't seen had picked her up. I was surprised that she had called her own ride, as she usually asked me to call an Uber for her to take her home. I figured she had made prior arrangements. Upon seeing the car outside, she had uttered to the driver of the vehicle, Whose car is this? Look how drunk you are. He, however, stated that he had not been concerned about this interaction, as it was evident that she knew the driver. She had then got into the vehicle of her own volition and left. And that's where his apparent knowledge and involvement in the matter began and ended. Mm -hmm. He would then go on to state that he was not only supporting his 82-year-old grandmother, who had numerous illnesses, but he had also been taking care of Tejofatso. Any cell phone records would even show that he had sent her an e-wallet to take care of her and the unborn baby. He also claimed that he was very forthcoming and helpful in the days following her disappearance and even his arrest. He had said, I felt the need to help the police investigate her disappearance. I informed police that in my complex, there are CCTV cameras that may have picked up the vehicle registration numbers. Despite receiving several death threats from the community, I have handed over all the information in this matter. His lawyer had then added, My client is not of a violent nature. He is employed and doesn't want to jeopardize his future by going and attacking other people. That is not in his nature. But the prosecution had argued. There was nothing exceptional that has been placed before this court that he deserves to be released on bail. He failed dismally. Being employed is not an exception. Ooh, 
Shem, so Shoba was left flailing. And during one of these failed bail attempts in April of 2021, Shoba then showcased a new narrative to the court. You're going to want to listen to this one. In this narrative, he stated that it may actually be Malapane who was the father of the unborn baby. Apparently, this information was given to him by a fellow awaiting trial inmate at the Krugersdorp Correctional Center. He had said his cellmate John Mahabe told him that he had met Malapane and Malapane had confessed to being Tehofatz's boyfriend and he said that he had murdered her after they had got into an argument. So basically, Shoba was innocent and he was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. So anyways, after months of waiting, the court case finally began and the friends and family of Tejo Fatso braced themselves. Going into the murder trial, there were 16 witnesses waiting to take the stand. One of the witnesses, who was actually the last person to speak to Tejo Fatso on the day, began receiving anonymous phone calls, threatening her to not reveal information about what had transpired on the day. She was then placed under 24-7 protection along with her family. In February of 2022, Shoba took to the stand telling his side of the story. The story had changed, however, since April of 2021, though. He now accepted some form of ownership and responsibility over the unborn child. However, he stated that he did not want his fiancée, Rosetta, to find out about Tejo Fatso's pregnancy. He stated to the court that he did not want to stress her, as she had recently lost her mother to cancer. He had said, I could not bring myself to tell her. It was very sensitive, having lost your mom and then finding out your partner has impregnated another woman. He also claimed that despite Rosetta sending threatening messages to Tejo Fatso to leave her man, she was unaware of the pregnancy up until she had heard about the death of Tejo Fatso. Shoba was also accused of having a secondary phone as well as enacting a SIM swap when he handed over his primary phone to police officers. A SIM swap basically allows you to port your existing cell phone number to a new SIM card should your phone be lost or stolen. Those allegations against him were the subject of a charge of defeating the ends of justice. A police expert, communications analyst and a forensic cell phone investigator, Andres Fantonda, testified that Shoba denied knowing about the second phone and unregistered number that was alleged to have repeatedly called Malapane hours before the murder. However, that number had been identified by records and the data of cell phone network providers to be in the same location as his registered phone on the day. And then came the matter of the CCTV footage, which was again presented by Shoba's defense as a way to prove his innocence. Remember I touched on this earlier? Well, it brought a very odd detail to light. What, you may ask? Well, there was three minutes unaccounted for on the night. Let me explain. Shoba and Tsehofatso are seen initially heading out of the gate before returning inside. Then, about five minutes later, they both walk back to the gate and exit the property. The timestamp states that it is 22.06. The vehicle is outside and Shoba and Tejofatso are still in the frame. The next clip, however, is 22.09, three minutes later, and Shoba is now walking into the complex and the car is driving off. 
But what really happened in those three minutes? Shoba's team continuously stated that there was an error in the cameras, whereas the complex management stated that the cameras only operated and recorded when the gate was either being opened or closed. In Malapane's testimony, he had stated that Tejofatso needed to be convinced extensively to get into the vehicle. And that makes a lot more sense, as opposed to Shoba's allegation that he was not out side for those three minutes, even though he is seen entering the complex again at 22.09. Throughout his testimony, Shorba spoke without emotion, reacting to the testimony of witnesses as though he was watching a movie, with no apparent regard for the emotions of Tejofatsu's family or the memory of her. His family said that he reduced her to sounding like a bimbo and a slut. He made it appear as though she was just some random girl who slept around and was worthless. The only time he exhibited any emotion was when he was found guilty on one of two counts in March of 2022. He had then bowed down, placing his head in his hand. Judge Stuart Wilson had found him guilty on the premeditated murder of Tejofatso Pule and on the second count he was found not guilty of obstruction of justice. Wilson indicated in his verdict that the state had failed to prove beyond reasonable doubt that Shorba had tampered with his cell phone to hide information from the investigators. In speaking to Malapane's evidence, which was to be taken into account, Judge Wilson had said, Even a serial liar sometimes tells the truth. Even a witness with an axe to grind may give evidence that is clear and honest against the subject of their animus. His evidence was not so unsatisfactory that it could be rejected in its entirety. The facts that have been proven all point in one direction, that Mr. Shoba arranged for Muzika Ise Malapane to kill Ms. Pule, that he first attempted to do so by having Mr. Malapane meet Ms. Pule at the Ormondo McDonald's outlet, and that when that plan failed, he knowingly and intentionally delivered Ms. Pule into Mr. Malapane's hands on the night of 4th June 2020. Upon the news of the guilty verdict, friends, family and the community breathed a sigh of relief. However, Tsekhofatso's family said that even a harsh sentence would not bring her back. Her uncle, Tumasang, who was actually the defense lawyer of Karabo Mokene's killer, had said, At the end of the day, it doesn't matter whether they give him double life or triple life. The fact is, it won't bring back Tsekhofatso. His family still has a chance to visit him and talk to him in jail. That experience for us is lost forever. And just on a side note, after Tejofatso's murder, her uncle Tumasang pledged to never again represent those who rape, kill or molest women and children. He had said that before he had just done his job. But now he knew what it was like for the family. Police Minister Begi Kmele had said, Ntudoko Shoba plotted to not only kill his girlfriend, but also his unborn child. The next step is for the courts to hand this man an appropriate sentence that we hope can bring some comfort and justice to the Pule family. Ntudoko Shoba was finally sentenced in July after two postponements in May. July also marked what would have been Tejofatso's baby's second birthday. Shoba was sentenced to life imprisonment. Judge Stuart Wilson said, There is no comparable factor that would justify a departure from the prescribed statutory penalty in Mr. Shoba's case. 
Mr. Shorber was the driving force behind the scheme and has done nothing since Miss Poulet's murder to merit the kind of leniency that Mr. Malapani received. Accordingly, on count one of the indictment, I sentence you to life imprisonment. You may sit down. And so after just over two years, the case was concluded. And Tejo Fatso's friends and family were finally given the chance to heal and look to the future. They had lost so much, not only a beloved niece, sister and cousin, but in the weeks following her murder, her cousin Tsapang, who was pregnant too at the time, had miscarried due to the shock and horror of the loss. As I mentioned, the two of them had been so close and they were both expecting little girls, planning to raise their daughters together. But those dreams would never make it into reality. Another young woman lost her life prematurely. Another victim of her intimate life partner. Someone she thought she could trust. Another statistic. And so that brought to light the bigger issue at hand. Although the world was in pandemonium and the country was in lockdown, what was termed the shadow pandemic was steadily tightening its grip on the nation. So what exactly do I mean by the shadow pandemic? Well, the increasing rates of gender-based violence and femicide, GBVF, in South Africa. Whilst I fully recognize and acknowledge that men can also be victims of gender-based violence, for the purpose of this episode, this month, and this narrative, I will be focusing on the majority of GBV victims, women and girls. So where exactly is this alarming behavior and these callous actions rooted? Well, unfortunately, in so many aspects of daily life. It does, however, stem largely from the patriarchal norms we have established in regards to the role and the view of women in society. There are, however, many other factors that also drive and influence the behavior, though, like low levels of female empowerment, lack of social support, socioeconomic inequality as a result of past racial segregations, as well as other factors like substance abuse. In some cultures and settings, violence against women is also seen as acceptable on certain occasions. And this social acceptability only adds to the difficulty in dealing with the issue at hand. So instead of focusing solely on Shoba, I would like to focus on the larger issue at hand. Namely, the characteristics and beliefs that individuals like him, mostly men, hold that drive them to commit the atrocious acts that they do. Of course, there are often mental issues at play too, many of which stem from the developmental period of childhood, and many of which are influenced by the environment that the individual is surrounded in. Tero Fatso was a vulnerable woman who, in some way or form, had a type of reliance on the father of her unborn child, if for no other reason than for him to be a part of the child's life. Shoba took advantage of that vulnerability. And that is quite commonplace in many other situations of GBVF. Childhood development, as I speak about with every single other perpetrator that I discuss in this series, has a major role to play in lifelong attitudes and behaviors. If young boys learn to look at women in a certain light, objectifying them and controlling them, then ultimately they will grow up to understand that this behavior is normal and acceptable. 
And in the same light, if young women are exposed to these same beliefs, they will eventually internalize them, beginning to accept the treatment they receive as the norm. The acceptance of abuse within relationships in certain situations highlights this. But GBV doesn't always lead to death. In intimate relationships, often the woman in the relationship could be emotionally, economically, or of course physically abused, but still live to survive another day. So how do we deal with this pervasive behavior? Well, for starters, we continue to speak up. There is power in numbers, and by speaking out about an individual experience, it allows others to understand that even if they're in a difficult situation, they are not alone. It allows other women and girls to see that the behavior that they may be experiencing is not and should not be acceptable as a norm. It challenges the patriarchal belief system that has ruled for years. It also allows for change to be enacted. Perpetrators bear witness to these marches, organizations, protests, and social media posts. They see that their actions and behavior will not be ignored and that they can and will be held accountable. Every conviction passed down in court to those who harm and hurt the vulnerable reinstate the message that GBVF will not be tolerated. The harsher the sentence, the stronger the message. But it takes more than just women to stand up to this violence. We cannot fight alone. We must fight as a collective. It's not women against men, Rather, the innocent against the guilty, the vulnerable against the exploiter. If we as women are left alone to cry out in anger, in indignance, in sadness, it is not enough. And this is evident. This is clear. We need to move together to spread a message of equality and safety for all. We need to be backed by the government in a very tangible and immediate way. We need to be supported by the men who don't believe in this violent narrative, by the men who will join us in our fight for freedom. Women are tired. Like I said in last week's episode, it doesn't matter where we go, what we wear, or how old we are. We are still vulnerable. We are still left to wonder, am I next? Will I be another statistic? Will I be the next Tsekhofatso Pule? Tsekhofatso's family was adamant that she should not be remembered as that pregnant girl who was hanged from a tree. They wanted her name to be spoken by those who were the recipients of the fruit of the tree that she died on. And so the Tsekhofatso Pule Foundation was born. A non-profit organization that found its place in the fight against GBV. The organization is not only focused about raising awareness of the issues at hand, but also offering support and serving as pillars of strength to families affected. Tejo Fatso may no longer be with us, but her life and her story will never be forgotten. She will never be just another number, just another statistic. Thank you for joining me today to remember her and the young life she carried within her, who never had the chance to see the world. I hope there will come a day when stories like hers are not commonplace, a day when women no longer have to fear simply existing.
Until next week, my loves, stay safe, stay blessed, and stay the amazing human beings that I know each and every single one of you are. Bye.